0: Uh, good morning, everybody. My name is Laurie Shore, I'm an Airbus Captain and the Coordinator of the Peer Assistance Network, or PAN, as we're known in Hong Kong. Uh, joining me today is Mr Todd Ware, uh, Director of Staff Support at Queensland Ambulance Service. Their peer support program is known as Priority One and has been running for close to 30 years and is recognized locally and internationally as continually setting the gold standard and best practice for peer support. Todd has been associated with our training uh, from the get-go and recently conducted a presentation for our PSOs titled Managing Assessment Anxiety, which revolved around understanding the neuroscience behind anxiety in stressful situations and how we can manage it. We're conducting this podcast today as an introduction to a longer webinar in the coming weeks, which we will delve into this topic more deeply, not just around the checking environment, but simply managing stress during this extraordinary time. Good morning, Todd. Uh, thanks for giving us some of your time this morning. Thanks, sorry. Thanks for having me. No worries. Thanks. So, and before we get started, I'd just like to convey my gratitude on behalf of uh, the PAN and indeed our entire organisation to Todd and by extension the Commissioner of QAS, Mr. Russell Bowles, for Todd's very generous support, knowledge, and experience in assisting us to set up our Peer Support Program. Uh, while our PAN is structured along internationally accepted guidelines, and we borrow heavily from our friends at Qantas, ALPA, BALPA and Alpa, for example, now known as uh, ALPA International, our philosophy and methodology uh, for actual training of our peer support officers has been heavily influenced by QIS, who in turn, as I mentioned, uh, set the standard for best practice. Well, thanks, Todd. Um, we'll jump into it. I've often been asked, and indeed I asked the same question when I when I first met you. Why why compare pilots to paramedics? Um, they operate under very different stressors, which aren't applicable to us.
1: Mm. Yeah, thanks, Laurie. And it's a good question. And even I wondered that when I first started having conversations with you some time ago now. But as I've thought about it, and I've had more exposure in relation to um, the airlines, what I'm seeing is that there's actually a lot of similarities when it comes to um, paramedics and pilots, and um, you know, part of that is that they're um, professionals that come into an organisation that requires you to be really good at what you do. So there's an aspect around being perfectionistic, um, which is, I think, is pretty common amongst pilots and paramedics. Um, and then when you look at the work environment, you know, there's aspects around it being safety critical. There's aspects about it being high risk if you do something wrong. Like, so you really need to be able to do it right. Um, there's aspects around shift work. There's aspects around fatigue. Um, you know, historically, ambulance was a uh, a male-dominated, toughen-up type culture, and um, and that now really transitions quite differently. Um, and you know, there there is there, and there can be um, aspects that uh, can play on people's uh, you know uh, sense of anxiety and and what's going on for them in relation to organisational issues that occur. So I think there's a whole lot of similarities when we start to think about the two um, as being very similar. And, and I think one of the most important similarities is that um, paramedics and pilots are both humans as well. Um, and they have the same type of brain and a brain that does the same type of thing as well. It's actually designed in the same way. Um, and being humans, uh, we all have that same type of brain regardless of what occupation we do.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Todd. And um, we've structured our philosophy of peer support around a critical incident management strategy. Um, Would you like to expand on that?
1: Um, Yeah, I think sometimes when it comes to critical incident management, people tend to think of those um, significant incidents that occur in relation to the work that you do. And, you know, so certainly for paramedics, a lot of times people think about the types of jobs that they go to. But we actually know that critical incidents are much broader than that. And oftentimes people want to know, well, what is a critical incident? What's the definition of a critical incident? And um, there isn't really one uh, easy definition of it because it's how we perceive an event that makes it a critical incident, not the event itself. So um, it could be, a critical incident could be um, in relation to COVID, for example. I think it's a good example of a critical incident where, um, you know, that's uh, had a, a, an impact on people that will increase their level of anxiety. It will actually, um, you know, engage the brain in the same way that an acute critical incident might. Um, so, uh, you know, but it often isn't seen as one of those clear uh, critical incidents. It could also be a marriage breakup is a critical incident. It could be, um, you know, going for a, a, a failing a, a flight thing could be a critical incident. So. Um, It's much broader than the traditional idea of, you know, this type of uh, occurrence has to be a critical incident Um, and uh, because our brain will do the same thing in both contexts. And sometimes, you know, when we think about those ideas of, yeah, that's an obvious critical incident, that's sometimes what people are trained for. You know, when there's something that occurs um, for a pilot uh, on an aircraft That's what you're trained for to deal with those situations. So, oftentimes you might be fine with it. You know, your training kicked in, you're feeling good about it. um, And the organization might see that as a critical incident, but for the pilot themselves, they're going, oh, no, that's fine. I felt like I had good control. Um, Whereas, there's times where the same incident might occur and you felt like you didn't have as much control, then that might be more confronting to you and might be considered more of a critical incident.
0: Yeah, thanks very much. So you touched on um COVID um as being a, a critical incident. And I guess there's no time and end stamp at the moment, so it's just an ongoing. Um and we discussed it a little bit earlier and uh, like in a few weeks in the previously that we're talking about it being like you guys would compare to to, to disaster relief. So yeah. can you explain a little bit of science behind that as well? Yeah.
1: I think um, it's, it's been, uh, you know, when we look at COVID, I think we need to look at it as a disaster in the same way that we would view a disaster. But it's a little bit different compared to most disasters where it might occur for a short period of time. You get a heap of resources right at the beginning. You deal with the situation and then the situation subsides and then you're, you know, sort of picking things up from there. Um, with COVID, this is an event that actually has no clear time frame uh, you know, there's an immediate response, but there's also an ongoing response. You now, a brain is designed so that we can uh, find a beginning, a middle, and an end of an event. In fact, we've got a part in our brain called the hippocampus that's designed specifically to create a storyline around an event so that it can know um, when it's safe. Um, you know, And importantly, there's a part in the brain called the limbic system and an amygdala within that limbic system that wants to look for danger. Am I in danger, yes or no? And that's pretty much in the context of stress, trauma, anxiety, all of those things. It wants to know, am I in danger, yes or no? And if it determines that there's some danger, it will trigger a flight or freeze response, that's your sympathetic nervous system, Um, and uh, it will continue that activation until your brain is able to go this event's now over. And that's what your hippocampus does. Now, if we look at the context of COVID, um, nobody's got any closure around that. We can't see what a clear end is or even what the end looks like. So our brain's going to continue that level going and then it will add in other things like, you know, what does this mean financially? What does this mean when I've got to fly again? You know, I have to go back into the sim and I haven't flown for a a certain period of of time, so it's going to increase this process and make it much more difficult for that hippocampus to go. This event's now over. So when we think about it, it really is no different to a disaster response. Um, and in the sense of that, we also need to be preparing ourselves for what a disaster response might look like, but over a longer period of time that needs to be sustainable over however long that time frame is. And that that response for our brain is really normal and really natural and it's what our brain is designed to do that kept us alive as a species. And it kept us alive from predators attacking us and we were able to be in a position where we could fight, flight or freeze. But it's much more complicated in today's society that there's a whole heap of other aspects that will activate that same response in our brain. And this is what I mean by pilots and paramedics, our brains are the same. And um, that response happens naturally And it happens as a part of the autonomic nervous system, so we don't have any control over it. Um, And so we need to have mechanisms in place, same way we would if there was a disaster to be able to downregulate that sympathetic nervous system response. And even though we don't have that information yet to say that it's over, how do we keep that in check so that we can reach that point when it is over? Um, And so that's important then to have some really proactive strategies in place to be able to do that. And that takes, um, you know, it's not something that I can just wait for. It needs to be something that needs to be an ongoing, proactive uh, way of dealing with it and maintaining well being. And because we do know as well that, um, you know, if this limbic system keeps on being activated, that pathway will become uh, embedded in a lot more so that it's much more likely to maintain that activation. And over a long period of time, I mean, that's anxiety, a chronic anxiety. We can have acute instances of anxiety, we can have chronic instances, and when we throw in COVID, it's much more likely to become chronic, and then after a long period of time, our body gets exhausted and often then leads to depression. So, um, you know, we can then go from that high state of anxiety into that fight, flight, or freeze uh, response quite frequently, and then into that depressive response. So... We really want to be able to be proactive in looking after ourselves so that we don't become depressed um and so that we can have a sense of control over the anxiety in a way um, but we're still not going to get rid of it completely until we've got some much more clear information as to what's going to happen in in the future and what that looks like
0: that's awesome thanks so and um, what i'm what I'm hearing you say there it, it, can that be turned also as uh, and what what we're going through collectively as a very normal reaction to an abnormal situation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's uh, and Viktor Frankl coined the term, you know, an abnormal. Uh, a, a, oh, now I've forgotten what it is. Uh, coined the term a, a normal, uh, an abnormal reaction to an abnormal event is normal, um, and uh, and so it's very normal to have that response. And in some ways, and it's not always doom and gloom, um, because I think uh, we, I mean, we do know that there's another outcome, um, as a, you know, that that can be a response to this, which is post-traumatic growth. And essentially, COVID is a trauma, and it takes situations where we are really rattled, and we start to value what's important to us. Um, and so there's changes that occur, even though it's hard at, at the time. Later on, we can see actually. I really value relationships more now. I really value being able to get up and uh, fly even more now um, than what I did before because of what I've been through. Um, And so it might change those priorities around what's important um, and a sense of self. And I think one of the things that's difficult and also very similar between paramedics and pilots is that um, that's your identity. Uh, And oftentimes when that identity is challenged, then, you know, what's my identity other than being a pilot? Because you've got other identities as well. And, um, you know, an aspect like this might challenge that sense of identity, but it might also help people to go actually, I've got other things that I'm also, uh, you know, that I also find to be important that is also my identity. I am a pilot. uh, That's an occupation and part of my identity, not my whole identity.
0: Yeah, thanks, Todd. That's Really, really important uh, to, to to understand that abnormal reaction to an abnormal situation uh, from Victor Frankel. Yeah. You touched on something just a minute there ago, talking about connections. Um, um, we've spoken about this closed loop line that's coming up. Um, this is one aspect of what, what we, the challenges uh, we're facing collectively at the moment. But I think also in greater life, we you know what you taught us uh, during our training was uh, you know the, the value and the importance of maintaining those connections. Would you like to expand on that a little bit. Yeah.
1: And I think this has been one of the challenges of COVID because it's uh, compared to most disaster events, people come together and they really collectively connect. And people, uh, uh, their brains are designed to connect with other people. And again, that's an evolutionary response that's kept us alive. If we could <coughs> stay together as a group, then we'll safe from those predators. So uh, people, in order to feel safe, Need to feel socially connected. And one of the things with COVID is that it's changed our way that we might connect. Um, And, uh, you know, they talk about social distancing and the need for social distancing, but in fact, it doesn't mean social isolation. And in fact, um, you know, that's a different aspect. Um, When it comes to that closed loop flying, uh, that's going to be a real challenge in then how do you identify what's important for your, you know, if you've got family at home, what's important to know that they're okay? If I'm going to be away for five weeks, um, and how do I ensure that 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 and and feel comfortable and confident that they're going to be okay? And so it can take some preparation around before you go, um, and then uh, you know when when you are away, at least that's one thing that you don't have to be as worried about, and which is an important component. And then the other aspect is then when you're away, how do you still stay connected with people? And especially when you're in isolation, how do you stay connected with people and having avenues? And it can be really easy. And especially if you start to feel, um, you know, really anxious or you start to feel depressed, it can be really easy to isolate yourself, but it's important to have those connections. So, um, you know, I think one of the advantages out of COVID is this idea of being able to, to meet Um, over video conferencing and and different channels like that, um, or over the telephone, still being able to have that human connection um, is really critical and prioritising that as a part of looking after yourself. Um, And because if we don't, then that's likely to increase that activity of the brain and that limbic system and increase that anxiety and hyperarousal. And once again, it's it's your normal response. Um, to what's going on, and it's your brain doing exactly what it's designed to do. Um, and that connection can help us down regulate that sympathetic nervous system response to their brains going, okay, I'm connecting with this person who I feel safe with. Um, and so, you know, we know out of uh, all the research, um, one of the most powerful things is not psychologists or psychiatrists, one of the most powerful things is having a, a connection with somebody that I feel safe with and trust. Um, is. Is far more powerful than all of those clinical aspects that we tend to look at. Even when it comes to disaster response, now you know we do know that it's pointless sending in the professionals to fix people. Um, actually, what people need is to connect with people that they know and feel safe with them, and um, and have those conversations about what it was like instead of having you know people come running in to fix them. So.
0: Oh, fantastic, Todd! I and mean, you touched on you know, the connection aspect of it. And if we look at um, from a critical incident stress management response, um, and we talk about the connection with um, the mothership, so to speak, you know, um, yeah. managers. And I, when I speak to pilots, they go so, yeah, uh, looking at that model, um, saying yeah. that um, you know, manager support. Oh no, we don't want to talk to management, or we don't want to, because there's a there's a natural fear response in there. Yeah. Um, can you explain a little bit of you know the science behind that um, for the that, that aspect of the CISM response? Yeah, yeah.
1: I think that's really important um, and it's been a lot of work that we've been doing for about 11 years now in ambulances, how impactful a manager's support is uh, over anything else and again, over having a psychologist go there um, in terms of doing any clinical intervention and oftentimes managers want to support staff um, but they just worry, am I going to make it worse if I do or am I going to say the wrong thing? But if it's an authentic... Um, you know, contact by a manager, people um, feel naturally safer. And, um, you know, I remember uh, an incident that I did talk to a crew after um, and I talked a bit about the neuroscience that I've talked a bit about today and they said, yeah, that was all happening until I got a call from the manager saying, how are you going? So it was really powerful in terms of decreasing that hyperarousal and decreasing that limbic system response in fact, much more powerful than anything I could have done. So that manager's support is really critical and oftentimes being able to reassure managers that it is actually helpful and you can't really, you know, as long as you're authentic, um, that's what helps uh, in the context of it um, and that it's more powerful than, you know, spending money on psychologists or psychiatrists. And then the other thing is is the peer support program, which I think are really critical to be able to... Um, Uh, speak to somebody that you know knows what you do. Um, And I think that's really powerful in terms of uh, being able to, A, you don't have to uh, protect the other person as much. You know, oftentimes when we're talking to families, we want to protect them a little bit around the details because we don't want them to be worried. We don't want them to be anxious about things. So um, uh, being able to talk to a peer, you know that they've been through the same things, um, the same type of experiences. And again, that becomes that connection that is not so filtered through um, what I want to do to protect that other person. So again, that's really powerful. Managers and peer supporters—if you look at those two aspects—that's far more powerful than psychologists and psychiatrists and and all the best professionals in the world. Um, there is a need for those at some point for some people, but if we do those two things really well—the managers and the peer support—you um, know—connections, uh, then uh, oftentimes there's much less of a need for having professional support.
0: That's great. Thanks, Todd. So the just going back to what you're saying about um yeah you know, how you guys have done, and I know that study came from a result of four years uh, with collaboration between all the emergency services in Australia, and that is internationally accepted, that set approach into critical incident uh, stress management, but you know, you guys have been going for 30 years, we've been going for less than one, um, mm-hmm. what were the, some of the hurdles you guys faced for getting that trust um, you know, for people yeah. to reach out to, the, um, to your peer support network, or priority one in your case? Yeah, and I get
1: asked that a lot. Um, and I think it's a little bit different nowadays as well, because I think the culture, the society was different 30 years ago to what it is now. I think there's a much more of an openness, uh, in understand, <laughs> in understanding that it's okay to reach out to support a lot more. Um, you know, as I said, I mean, I've been in ambulance now for over 20 years. And, and when I first started, it was, uh, you know, oftentimes a predominantly male culture second or third career, so people were, um, you know, a lot older and there was a lot of stigma attached to um, not travelling well and a lot of stigma attached to reaching out. Um, but I learnt pretty quickly in my job, and I did a psychology degree first and then ended up becoming a paramedic, but I learned pretty quickly the difference about those people who were able to stay in the job for a long period of time and still be really well and happy were those ones that were really proactive about looking after themselves. So that was a really good early learning for me um, in my career. Um, And so there is still elements where people uh, are uncertain about reaching out for support or they've still got some stigma attached to it. But I think if you understand that it's just your brain doing exactly what it's designed to do um, and getting that education out there that this is normal, this is a very normal response and it's just about decreasing that hyper arousal and looking after yourself, and, you know, accessing support for yourself doesn't mean that you're, you know, you have to do it when you're not travelling and well. Um, you know, we've really tried to break down the barriers in ambulance, but this is part of actually how you do look after yourself um, in accessing support. So whether that be through peer support, whether that means talking to your manager, or whether that means accessing a psychologist, it's all about looking after yourself and having that longevity in the role so you can stay well over a long period of time. And the other aspect is, you know, sometimes people can look like they're traveling really well at work, but they're not traveling well at home and their families will notice that they're not traveling well. So this is not just about work. This is about how you look after yourself across all aspects of life. Um, And uh, breaking down some of those stigmas and having some of those conversations is what helps, I think, get to that point in, in understanding that this is okay to do it. And in fact, as I said, you know, we're all humans and that's what our brains designed to do.
0: Yeah, oh, that's great, Todd. And just jumping back to what you're saying before, what, what is, uh, about self-care? What are some of the um, self-care signs you can look for that you know you may be in one of those fight, flight, or freeze responses? You know, um, yeah. and you can recognise it and get yourself back. Is there, you've got to, Can you share some aspects of that?
1: Yeah, and I think sometimes that can be a challenge because oftentimes we don't recognise that we're anxious until we reach a point where um, our behaviour looks different to other people. So, and I think this is where um, a uh, managers and peers play a really critical role in going, uh, they're a little bit different to what they normally are. So, um, and, and I often say, um, you know, if you're starting to feel that way, what's normal for you? So, if you're normally pretty extroverted, um, but then you start to really isolate yourself and not talk to people, then that's probably a, a difference in what is normal and vice versa. So, Um, There's some changes in what might be normal. Um, Noticing that you might have um, some some palpitations or tension. Um, I often talk to people about noticing what's happening in your body first because that's often a good early indicator. And for me, you know, I'll notice tension in my neck and I'll notice that I get a bit of a headache. Um, And that's an early sign for me to notice uh, some anxiety creeping in. And if I can notice that early, then I can be intentional about how I can decrease that anxiety. Um, and then, you know, so it is a continuum where we might have an acute stress phase that will happen fairly quickly, or we might have one that's happening chronically over time. And I think the earlier that we can pick it up, the better. So it could be, and oftentimes you hear people saying, oh yeah, um, oftentimes you hear people saying, um, yeah, you're not yourself. You're not, you're not, you know, you're different to normal. And, um, and having that, uh, can be really helpful
0: as well. Excellent. Thanks very much, Todd. I, I, I think the coin machine's running out of money, so we might have to uh, hold it there and wait for the rest of the webinar. We so, <laughs> I mean, can't chat for the rest of the day. <laughs> I, I know we can easily do that. So, uh, Todd, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it as always. And um, uh, and also to Commissioner Bowles and the QAS for, for your support. And we look forward to continuing uh, in the future. Thanks very much for
1: having me. Thank no you. worries.